The siege of Starro isn't over. From a single healthy spore, Starro will rise again to feed on your world. And this time, there will be no stopping. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro. I'm joined by Dr. Bill Robinson. Yes... And we have, I don't know, you know, I don't know that it could be considered a blast from the past anymore, because now we've, even even though they haven't heard it yet, we've recorded a few things in the last couple of weeks. But uh, Michael Bailey is back with us. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking about that when you were, um, like, getting all this organized. I'm like, ah, I'm on this list now. Okay, I guess because I'm doing the other stuff. That... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was, it was just as easy to do that. As to start a brand new text, and you know, we already had the group set. I figured, what the heck? But, but you know, maybe, maybe now we can kind of have you as the semi-regular guest or something. Uh, I'd be up for that. This was a uh, this is a lot of fun. I haven't I, I, one of the books I've never read before and have been meaning to read for a long time. So that was a that was a good bit of timing there. Yeah, we have two books. We decided to make this an impromptu score episode, uh, and and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But uh, we're recording this right on the heels of DragonCon, and I can tell you I would have loved it if I had gone there, but I didn't. But uh, Mr. Bailey did, so I wanted to ask mm-hmm. about... Uh, uh, it sounded, from what I saw on Facebook, it looks like you had a pretty... Uh, pretty awesome time and it looks like you got to meet up with some people uh whose levels of fame go from real life fame to podcast fame <laughs> yeah no i um it was a lot of fun i, I dragon con was taking everything really seriously which is the only reason we went uh because my wife was a little nervous uh with the delta variant surging that like do do we really need to do this and then DragonCon announced you had to show that you were vaccinated or that you had gotten a negative test within 72 hours they also had a testing site on site uh, so if you needed to get a test you could so we went and uh, for the most part uh, everybody was masked up you know you, you had to you had to wear it in the track rooms uh, they wanted you to wear it in common areas. It was a little more complicated at night at the bars because, you know, you're drinking more. Mm-hmm. Hard to wear a nice uh, drink. But uh, it seemed like 
that was a little freer. But yet, when we were leaving to go home, because we didn't stay in town, uh, because, yeah, uh, there's a whole thing with that that we don't really want to get into. Um, but uh, when we um, when we were leaving to, to get to Marta, I was, like, walking by, and people were just sitting there with a drink in their hand and their mask on. And when they drink, they tuck the mask down, took a quick drink, and, and put it back up. It was, uh, was kind of nice. Now, I don't know, as the night wore on and people got drunker, if that <laughs> stayed. Uh, but No, then the they would pull time, the drink down and eat the mask. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, did a lot of panels. Uh, I was on counting the celebrity moderating panels. I was on like 13 this year. Wow. Which isn't my record, but uh, but we talked about the greatest American hero, and we talked about Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and we did what's called a Rolla panel, uh, which normally, because the American Sci-Fi Classics track has so many ideas for panels, but they do, is they get a twenty. They usually uh, somebody actually makes like a twenty-sided dice, like a giant one with topics on it. And an audience member rolls it, and then we the panel talks about that for five minutes. <laughs> so uh, it and it and it was a lot of fun this year. It was I didn't know as much because uh, you you probably would have gotten a lot more out of it than I did, Paul. It was live action Saturday morning television with an emphasis on stuff from the seventies. Well, so the seventies is my uh, my sweet spot. So, so I, 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 for example, I was unaware that there was a show where Jim Neighbors and Ruth Buzzy were robots. Is that a Far Out Space Nuts? Yes, that's exactly what it was. Okay. So, so yeah, so I know a little bit about that stuff. Uh, so you would have <laughs> you would have been right at home on that, and Arc Two, and Isis, and. The one with Bob Denver and the other guy where they get oh, yeah. launched into space. Yes, uh, I can't think of what his name is now, and I know it well. Chuck uh, McCann. Chuck, McCann. Yes, Chuck McCann, yes. There you go. <laughs> Bill's there right right there with it. Very good. Um, and I did a presentation on the JSA with a couple of friends from the Earth Station Zero uh, Earth Station One, excuse me, Earth Station One Network, Mike Faber and Mike Gordon and Kevin Eldridge. And I did a green I did a green arrow panel and I was really nervous because Ruth and Darren Sutherland you guys know the Sutherlands, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're right in the audience and I'm talking about the Mike Grell run of Green Arrow and I've hardly ever been ner- that nervous. <laughs> well so it, it's it's hard to find people more expert on a subject than Darren and Ruth are on that, although they have several yeah. subjects that they're equally adept at. And with uh, Josh Bertoni and John Wilson, we talked about why Batman's a terrible boyfriend. I, so, I saw that. I saw that post by Bertoni today. Yeah, that that was uh, that was really funny too, because he actually made it kind of a multiple choice question. Like he presented a scenario and then gave four options. Uh, and oddly enough. Usually the craziest one isn't the one that he that actually happened, but most of the time it was because Batman's a terrible boyfriend. Uh, Not as bad as Daredevil. He, he, I don't know if Daredevil ever made his girlfriend wear a sign that says "I'm a sap" and stand in public, but uh, that, that, that's always possible. And we did a. Um, 
a fan panel on Smallville because it's the 20th anniversary. But the big thing was I had the pleasure and honor of moderating the Smallville celebrity panels. And there's three of them on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, I almost said Sam Welling. (laughs) (laughs) Sam Witwer, Tom Welling, and Laura Vandervoort were on all three, and Michael Rosenbaum uh, was on the Saturday and Sunday ones. Yes, I saw saw that picture, and I was jealous. And uh, I'm going to say right away, nice people. Really nice people. Uh, The... First panel was the the calmest because Rosenbaum wasn't there, and I and I was warned ahead of time just get out of his way, which proved to be uh, pretty good advice. Uh, but so, so the, is, the, is it like uh, he could be related to one of the Jack and Eddies? Is that like what the deal is? Well, he just gets up and he's gone and he's off. And that's it, that's the just, Jack and Eddies. Like, like <laughs> any plan that you had is no longer. Uh, relevant to the to the situation but the first day it was kind of cool because it was like i said rosemont wasn't there and tom welling did this interesting thing where he was sitting right next to me and we were a little distanced and when he would talk he would start at the end of the table and look at sam whitwer and lord of vandervoort then he would look at the entire audience and then he would lock eyes with me and and that's he just kind of did that and i thought it was a really interesting and kind of cool way that he was trying to engage with everybody. Like he wasn't just focusing on like the table or just one person. So, and then on the second day, I didn't have anything to do because Michael Rosenbaum was there. And, but towards the end of the panel, uh, because I had, shown off uh, a general knowledge of the show and of, of, of Superman in general, uh, the previous day, somebody asked a question about an episode, and I said that was the fifth season, and Sam Witwer points at me and goes, no, ask this guy. He knows everything about the show. So Michael Rosenbaum comes up to me and goes, so you know everything about Smallville. I'm like, I know a lot. So he starts quizzing me on Smallville. <laughs> uh, and I knew the answers, so that went well. But it was the third day that was actually my kind of my favorite because we're we're sitting backstage, so to speak, before everything's starting, and uh, it's just at that point Tom Welling and Laura Vandervoort because the other two haven't gotten there yet. And I look at Laura Vandervoort; she goes, "Oh, you're back," or something like that. She just generally acknowledges that I'm existing. I'm like, yeah, I'm uh, here for the final day. And I go, then I said, guys, I'm going to drop the veneer of being professional. I'm going to be a fan for a minute. This was really cool for me. I said, because 20 years ago, I came to my first Dragon Con, and I was really excited because Smallville was about to come on. And now 20 years later, I'm at Dragon Con, and I get to moderate these panels, and it was just a big deal. And that's when Tom Welling asks me, what was it like? Because he wanted to know from the fan perspective what the lead-up to Smallville was like. And it was just kind of cool just for a couple minutes to sit there and tell him the other side of it. He's like, because, you know, we were up in Canada shooting the thing. So we we had no idea what was going on. Hmm. So uh, that was actually kind of my favorite moment because it was just, it was like a kind of a human moment, if that makes any sense. Because when you're doing these celebrity panels... 
And this is the thing I realized about them. These guys get asked the same questions all the time. So the fact that they look as interested in doing it as they do is kind of amazing to me. Because <laughs> how many times can you get asked the same question? But it wasn't that. It was just like just a, just people kind of sitting around and having a, like a little conversation. And it was just neat. And Sam Whitwer told me that I was very patient. <laughs> um, and it was cool seeing him because not only was he on Smallville, uh, but my wife and I were... Uh, fans of a sh- fans of a show called Being Human, and he's uh, I keep forgetting that he's so knee deep into Star Wars as well, because uh, he's the voice of I think he's the voice of Darth Maul. Yeah, he was also in the Force Unleashed game. Yeah, he was the uh, Padawan that uh, that Darth he's Vader took up. Vader's so, secret apprentice, Star Killer. So he. Um, so he's like knee deep into nerddom, and I know he he's he's a big geek himself. In fact, he was talking about the Superman seventy eight comic. Uh, did you guys get that yet? I I've mm-hmm. seen it. I haven't gotten it. I I still have my aversion to buying new comics, so it's hard. <laughs> he was also a Once Upon a Time too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's a uh, <laughs> he he said at one point that uh, the secret to smiling is to the secret to him smiling is that he just looks absolutely dead in the eyes and then smiles and that's how he gets cast as bad guys so so it would would be fair to say that uh, Allison Mack didn't make an appearance oh it was very fair and uh, credit to everybody in the audience no one asked about it everyone else is classier than me Um, (laughs) and I'm kind of glad because as I watched that um, that documentary that ran on HBO, it's called The Vow, that was all about Nexium and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, ha- I have not seen that. It's 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 even worse than you might be imagining it. I'm not kidding. It was well. That's the thing about that, and I don't want to go too deep into it because uh, it was classless enough for me to bring it up in the first place but it's just like somebody who's into that kind of thing it's just hard to imagine working with them regularly and having no clue that that's going on yeah it's interesting because Rosenbaum talked about it on his show and he said he just didn't have as many scenes with her as other people did so and you know when you're I guess when you're into something like that you're, it's kind of a secretive thing. Yeah, I guess I mean, so, but it just seems so so out there. I don't know. It just seems weird to me. Uh, not counting Tutu Freaks, I've never been part of a cult before. <laughs> me neither, but this this one's already got me, you know, it's, it's pretty much got me uh, hook, line, and sinker. For the last, but no, oh, it was, it's coming up on ten years already. Good God. Wait, wait. <laughs> All right, put that by that altar over there. Oh, wait, shit, was my mic on? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was no, a lot no, no. of fun. The Kool-Aid mixer's coming tomorrow. <laughs> I remember when I was about four or five years old. So it's like 1980, uh, 1980, 1981. 
we were at a picnic with the family, and my mom kept calling the Kool-Aid the Jonestown Punch. <laughs> and I had absolutely no idea what she was talking about then. But if anybody is ever like, Mike, where did you get your dark sense of humor from? Yeah, it can be. It, that, that, it doesn't take Indiana Jones to figure that out. <laughs> did, but yeah, did any, lo- oh, go ahead. Did anybody by any chance ask Tom Welling about his stint on, uh, on like on uh, other shows? Like uh, he was recently on Lucifer. I didn't know if anybody uh, got that up. Yes, uh, he liked playing Kane, and he is now trying to work on with some of the writers and producers of Lucifer of doing like a Kane short series. Where oh, like oh like through the years like uh, yeah. so, Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, no, he... The, the thing is, is that I, I... In listening to him talk for three days, I get the feeling that he he doesn't want to be, like, a bad, bad... He doesn't want to play, like, a psycho or anything. Um, but that he just is probably... It seems to be at this point where he likes to do what he likes to do, you know? It's like mm. he likes to work. But I also get the feeling that, you know... Once you've been on a show for ten years, do you really want to like sign right up and do another show for ten years? You like to think at, at this, you know, after you do a show for ten years, you like to think you could afford financially to just do what makes you happy. Yeah, especially since he was an executive producer towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were, you know, they were. I always got the feeling that they were backing the money truck up to him to kind of keep that going because it was their most popular show for uh, for years uh, until Supernatural really took off. But he, uh, he but, uh, every time I've ever seen an interview with him or anything, he always struck me as kind of a just a regular guy. Like he yep, he, he never seemed to be seriously ego driven. Yep, really laid back. Um, all of them were really kind of relaxed. It was kind of it was kind of neat to see. Uh, they just got progressively sillier as the weekend wore on. And the, the only thing I could think of is by the third day, you're probably tired. I mean, I was just standing there with like a microphone, you know, getting people to ask questions, and I was kind of tired. So, but and and on the third on the third day, it was just pandemonium. They they led. They led a group singing of the theme song twice, and it was, and the first time everyone was singing it, Sam Whitworth jumped on the uh, on the, the the table that they were at, and he started doing like the spinning around thing that they did at the beginning of Smallville in the opening credits. <laughs> and I don't think anybody got it at first, but once you could tell when people did. Because the singing would get a little less, and you'd hear a little more laughing. So it's just, it was wild. It was just exhausting. Um, I if you if you most people who go to Dragon Con that I podcast with would have to like get a hotel room because uh, you don't live in the area. But going back and forth every day, uh, <laughs> it's just how far is how how far is that from your place? It's about an hour mm. total because you got to leave the the hotels and make your way to Marta, 
the MARTA trip is probably between 15 to 20 minutes, uh, depending on how long it takes the train to actually get to you. Because uh, one night we actually sat there for like 25 minutes waiting for it. Uh, and then it's like a half hour from the train station to our house. So, and, you know, this is, you know, after walking all day. And then everything ends late, so we're getting in by... We got in one day at 11, and that was kind of nice. But mostly we were there at, like, midnight, 1 o'clock, and then getting back up at 6, because uh, we have to get ready and then go back up there and be there at a certain time. So, I mean, it was kind of nice to sleep in your own bed, but at the same time, Monday, Sunday into Monday, we got home at 1 I was asleep by two and I was up at five because we had to be back up there super early that day. Oof. Yeah, I can't say I'm jealous of that. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's the part where everybody can go. Yeah, Mike, you can keep that. That's fine. <laughs> I, I could, I could get up at five probably with no problem at all. It's the going to bed. It's, it's the staying up till one and then yeah. you know, not getting the sleep beforehand that would kill me. You know, I could get up at five, but I want to be in bed by ten if I'm doing that. But honestly, I think both of you would find a lot of fun stuff to do at Dragon Con. I'm uh, sure. Be- because literally, if you're into anything, there's something there. And I, I was on three different tracks this year. Uh, and for those that are not familiar with Dragon Con, a track is just the section of the con that deals with a certain subject. So there's a Star Wars track. Garrett Wang actually is the director of the Star Trek track. I actually got that out, because usually when I say Trek Track, I screw it up. Um, There's, like, an American sci-fi fantasy media track, which is current stuff. And then the one that I'm most a part of is the American sci-fi classics track, which is everything 20 years back and older. Uh, We have yet to go back to the 30s, but it's mostly stuff in the 70s, 80s, and now creeping into the 90s. You combine all of that stuff with just, you know, the the different people who are friends with that were there. Mm-hmm. there. There would be more than enough to keep me occupied for the whole weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 great. And, and the comics area of it is really indie-driven. I mean, uh, John Romita Jr. was there this year, uh, but I never got a chance to get anything signed because Seth just did not have a chance to get over there. Uh, and... Tom Zoller, who does Loving Capes, comes just about every year, uh, and and I'm on good terms with him. And uh, Jason Albrecht, uh, the yard sale artist who's part of the Longbox Crusade Network, right. uh, and Van Allen Plexico are there. So it's just like like every it, it, it's it's like the Quantum Leap string theory. You know, you just ball up this convention, and all the different points are touching. <laughs> Sounds like a great time. Now, I just submitted it. for the for the first time in several years. I just submitted on a on a lark the application for a press pass to uh, New York Comic Con. And real the reality of it is, they're either going to grant me the press pass or I'm just not going. <laughs> you know, it's, it's as simple as that. That's fair. I mean, it's it, is it really worth it, especially with how big that show's getting? Though I don't know how big it's going to be this year. Dragon Con was much was half the size it was the last time we went. 
So uh, it was a little more manageable. Um, and yet we still managed to make all of our goals uh, charity. Charity this year was the the Boys and Girls Club, or Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Uh, so we they, they raised like over $100,000 wow. for that. Um, nice. Yeah, ner- nerds give money, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> but I also think it's just everybody was so happy to be there that no one wanted to mess it up for anybody else. Oh, Mike, did you come across any Stargirl panels or anything? I mean, uh, not that you had time to go to them, but... Did they have a presence? Yes, they they did have a presence um, in the American sci-fi fantasy media track covers all of that. They had a um, it was kind of a like because there's so few panels and so many shows they kind of combine things. But Stargirl was part of one of the panels. Uh, oh, it was the Heroes in Training. So they did a panel about Titans and Stargirl and another show where it was like young heroes being trained. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that would fall in nicely. I don't know if you've uh, watched any of this season. Uh, I, don't I watched the first episode. I'm behind because I found that the older I get, the more I like things to pile up, and then I can just watch oh, them yeah. all at once. Yeah, I'm on the third episode of this uh, of this go-around. H- how about you, Paul? I have them DVR'd, but I have not watched them yet. Oh. Okay, well, then I guess we won't say anything. Yeah, and it's been my time to catch up with things, because I finally watched the first season over the last month. Oh, Uh, okay. And I finally watched Shazam for the first time. I still haven't seen, seen that. I recommend it. I really do. It was, uh, there are some really dark moments in it. But it's also a lot of fun and has a tone that doesn't match any of the other DC uh, movies that are out right now. Cool. All right. So current events aside, mm-hmm. we're going to go. Uh, we're going into the Wayback Machine, but we're going to talk recent, too. Uh, well, I didn't bring a book, but Ooh. I did peruse two I was interested in, but I didn't have time to do a big synopsis, but I can discuss them when we... All right, it'll that's be, cool. So you're not really mind. bookless, Bill. You're kind of bookless, Bill. I'm just pointless, Bill. You're just a Bill. Yes, you're only a Bill. That's right. <laughs> so my books... Let me see. When was the... Cat- <laughs> Wait, just get that mic? No, I was- now it's in my head. He's just a Bill Robinson. I have a, Robinson. I have a T-shirt. It says I'm just a Bill. It's got the little guy on there and everything. Notes. What's funny is I got a, I recently bought a shirt and it said uh, it, it's got like it. It's in the font of Schoolhouse Rock, but it says Saturday mornings rocked, and it's got little cartoon figures of all the Justice. Uh, excuse me, the Super Friends. But then it's got the bill. Like it's 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 just a strange combo. But it's a cool shirt. Well, this week at work, I was doing something, and I was I was uh, trying to find some stuff, and I was like, 
looking through boxes to find me some cables, and I'm like, conjunction function, what's your, you know, electronic technician, what's your function, fixing stuff in the hospital and making it run right, and then I turn around and, like, one of the guys I work with, he's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? <laughs> like, you yeah, don't that know. That doesn't sound like a you problem. That sounds like a him problem. <laughs> exactly. Really. I gotta so, do something to make myself smile. So as 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 I started saying, uh, we're kind of doing a an impromptu score episode uh, on Starro the Conqueror, having uh, had him recently appear in the uh, new Suicide Squad movie. So before I go into Starro a little bit, or before we all go into Starro a little bit, have we all seen that movie yet? No. Um, no, no. I sorry, I was it. muted. I had to get the dog out of here. Uh, I missed it when it was on uh, HBO Max. I kept putting it off, and then I was like, "I'll watch it like the day after Dragon Con," and they took it off two days before that. It'll be, <laughs> it'll it'll probably be back in about a month. I think that's about how long they wait before they throw them back on. And uh, I honestly, because of the pedigree, I was expecting Guardians of the Galaxy, and it came up short of that. That was my take on it. I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. I thought it was okay, but it was kind of forgettable. There were there was there's, there's moments. I'm, I'm not saying I wouldn't, you know, that it wasn't worth watching. It just I, I had higher expectations. Well, I I found the first one to be really boring, um, especially when you got into the third act. Like I watched the first act where they were introducing all the characters, and I'm like, this is a pretty decent cast, and it was. And it was kind of cool. You saw Batman and the Joker flashback, and you saw the Flash and the Captain Boomerang flashback. And but once Joker kidnap or gets Harley, I was just like, I'm kind of done with this film. And so I, I I was just like barely paying attention. I look up, and suddenly there's a giant beam in the middle of the city, and I'm like, isn't this every like superhero film lately? And wasn't there like just some kind of big CGI fest at the end of the movie that really doesn't pull you in? Uh, so when I saw the trailer for the current one, I was actually shocked that I wanted to see it as much as I did. And I think it's because you could tell from the trailer that this one just had a completely different tone from the first one. Yes, and, and they do some bold things in it. Like I said, it has moments. I just... Thought on a whole, I thought I expected it to be just a little slicker and a little funnier. So, whatever the case may be, but the villain of the piece, if you did not already know, is Starro the Conqueror, which is why I said, hey, maybe we might, you know, do a little bit something on him, uh, him, it, her, I guess they, whatever. Uh, but I all I know is he's delicious. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't have a tremendous knowledge of the character, but I don't think I don't think this is a tremendous knowledge to have. To me, the 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 iconic image is the cover of the Justice League book from the I guess from the eighties. Uh, ah, with, you with found the, my books with the you Justice League all books. standing with the starfish on their faces, mm-hmm. and. and you know that's the image that stayed with me over the years, and I think that's that is a, that is an A plus cover for what it's worth. And it's a good story. Um, I haven't read it in years, but I remember uh, reading it uh, 
think like six or seven years ago. Did I do that for a show? Oh my god! Am I really at the point in my podcasting career where I'm forgetting things that I've covered? Mm. Well, <laughs> I don't know if it's the podcasting career or if it's just that we get older. Uh, That's true too. Because so, I, I was just it, thinking as you were talking about the first Suicide Squad movie that uh, I was like, yeah, I know I covered that early on the Is It Yours uh, run, and I took a look and it was the third episode of Is It Yours, and it was Andy Leyland and myself who covered it. And I have no recollection as to what I said about it. Nothing at all. <laughs> so I, I think I it's a combination of... Those... Uh, Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's a combination of the amount of content that we put out, the years going by, and just, you know, that I'm becoming an old, forgetful, feeble-minded fool. You're really hard on yourself, Paul. I don't think it's that bad. No, I, I think I actually I, I was taking that as a compliment to myself, but whatever, you know. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, what, what were you going to say that I interrupted? I, I was just like, sorrow is one of those goofy concepts that there are concepts that are goofy, and then there are concepts that are so goofy that they work. And I think sorrow is one of those because he he just has a really good premise to him. Like there was a really cool. Uh, story in Grant Morrison's run on Justice League. I think it was one of the uh, Secret Files and Origins where he was just played as this like world conquering, like world level threat. And I'm like, you can do that or you can make him kind of silly. Well, you can definitely go the silly route. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that, that's pretty clear to me. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the Justice League story that you, that we, you know, you said you read a few years back and the one that st sticks out in my mind. And I remember that being pretty good, too. And that, to me, goes towards the thought process that, you know, there are no bad characters. You write a good mm -hmm. story, it doesn't matter who the character is. If you write a good story, it's a good story, end of, end of story. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really against the idea that any character... Uh, is just worthless on its face. Like, you just gotta find the person that's gonna have the good hook to it. Well, you know, and, it, you know, like the Detroit League is something that, a uh, version of the Justice League is something that takes kind of a beating, uh, in some circles. But I remember in like the late 90s and early 2000s, they did a couple miniseries or stories within like a series where they dealt with that team and it was really good because you had somebody coming at it from a different perspective than when they were published. So characters like vibe aren't the punchlines that they kind of were originally. Yeah. Well, again, if it's well-written, you know, you can, you can, you can do all, all sorts of things with these characters. And I've seen characters that are, uh, like I said, on their face, they're very lame and seen good stories written about them. And we've talked on the show before about one, you know, one of our pet peeves being when one writer takes another character, another writer's character and disrespects him in his writing. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I remember years ago from crisis to crisis, we were interviewing Dan Jurgens, 
Uh, and we were talking about the fact that his character, Agent Liberty, was killed during the new Krypton story. And he kind of took issue with that. It's just like, why are you taking my character and doing that? And I get that sometimes you, you want to shake things up, but, you know, I, I kind of look at, at, at comic book heroes, especially in, like, the Marvel universe, which you're not only dealing with characters, you're dealing with IPs, and you're dealing with, in certain cases, icons. Like, like when you're doing Superman, you, you, you don't want to shake Superman up too much, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you, you've got to put that toy back in the toy box when you're done. So when you take a character that you thought was lame and kill them off, you've taken them off. No, not these days, but but you've kind of taken them off the plane. You know, the board for that someone you know that comes up behind you that might have a really good hook on them. You know, to come in and make it actually work. Like, look at Aquaman. I think Aquaman's a good point. Jeff Johns gets on Aquaman, and suddenly it's a top-tier book. Jeff Johns leaves Aquaman, it's no longer a top-tier book. Yeah, you know, that that disturbed me a little, only because you would think, okay, Jeff Johns is showing them how to do it. And there's got to be other writers out there clever enough to take that and 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 run with it. And yet they just fall back into old, bad habits and... I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I, I it's the same thing happened to Green Lantern. Like he leaves Green Lantern and suddenly that's not a big deal anymore. Now Grant Morrison had a run that, you know, put a little spike, you know, up in the popularity meter. But it's just it's so weird. It it, it got me really thinking about it actually. I was thinking about this this morning while I was getting ready for work. And I'm like, are are some characters just like good for a like a short run and not like an ongoing that that lasts forever and ever. And and when you bring them back, it's kind of exciting at that point and and more enjoyable. Or should you always just be trying to 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 to, to you know get more out of the mind, so to speak? Uh, you know, because one writer comes along and he finds a good vein of gold. And then the next writer comes along and he's tapping the same area and it just doesn't have the same effect on it. So, I mean, like, Superman and Batman are constantly going to be published. That's that's not going to be a thing. Uh, And I think Wonder Woman, too. But what about the other characters? And I say this as somebody that is not reading current comics, so maybe I'm not the one. Maybe this isn't the best area to talk about. Well, that's the show in general. We are people who do not read current comics. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's almost like if you want to get into comics as a writer, they should give you characters that are considered to be lame and said, write me a cool story to show me that you could do it, and then I'll consider giving you a job. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I do think... I mean, we, we've seen it time and time again where they've taken you know, a somewhat lame character and, and made it, made that character cool by the way they wrote the story. Uh, you know, I, I, the, I don't know why, but the, the example that's jumping to mind for me is uh, Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah, mm-hmm. Cra- Cra- when you think of, when you seriously think about Craven, he's a pretty lame character, but 
they put together a story that is considered to be one of the uh, all-time best in Spider-Man's history. So that's saying a lot. Yeah, and it was coming from a writer that looked at the character from a different standpoint. That, you know, he's not just the guy in the silly outfit that's hunting Spider-Man. He has this weird kind of complex uh, thing going on in his head where he's basically on a suicide run. Yeah. Like you said, leads to one of those stories that everyone that that if you read Spider-Man, eventually you're going to go back to Craven's Last Hunt. It's just one of those perennials, evergreen kind of Spider-Man stories. And I'm going to give the counterpoint to the argument I just gave uh, that it's always easier to write somebody's last story. Which is mm-hmm. not something which is not something you can do in comics because these characters always have to go back to square one eventually. Yeah, I, I, it's there's a line in the movie Primary Colors where ostensibly John Travolta was playing Bill Clinton, uh, but he's talking about uh, there's a scene where they're discussing one of the races where somebody is hitting him and they're talking about hitting them back and he says any jackass can burn down a barn and that line is always stuck with me with comics is you know like any like you said anybody can come in and do the final story because you get to do anything you want it's you know and and alan moore is a good example of that where you could argue that we saw what he would have done with superman with his run on supreme but that wasn't Strictly speaking, Superman. That was a Superman analog, where he writes whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and it's considered this brilliant story. But he got to end it. Like, show me the three years of him on the regular Superman titles in the DC in the DC universe proper, and then we can talk if that's one of the better writers for that character. Agreed. Agreed. I've I've often been criticized for not being willing to uh, genuflect at the altar of Alan, Alan Moore. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I'm not saying he's not talented. Nor I'm am I. Saying, I. I'm also not saying that I haven't read stuff of his that I've really, really enjoyed. But at the same time, for someone who is, who is uh, lauded as this creative genius... Most of his big work is somebody else's character that he's found a different take on. So fair play to him, but that's just, I, I think that has to be considered into the conversation. I think the thing that bothered me, and I don't remember all the details, so I may get this slightly off, is exactly what you said that you know a lot of most of his work that's considered the best stuff is working with other people's characters. Uh, you know, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen being a key example of that. Uh, and yet he was highly critical of Blackest Night because it was a throwaway line in something else he had written that they took and they turned into that whole, you know, event that went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, to me it seems highly hi- hypocritical and it bothered me. Yeah, it's just like, why are you taking my work and turning it into something when I've done that my entire creative life? <laughs> Wah. So just to kind of, you know, because we could just make, we could make this the whole conversation and this is our episode. And then we'll get to the point where we'll say, hey, you know, we got these two Starro books. 
Yes. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take us there now, and I'm gonna say I I chose for my book The Brave and the Bold, Volume One, Number Twenty Eight, which is the first appearance of Starro, and it's also the first appearance of the Justice League of America. And mm-hmm. I assume this is the one you were talking about saying you had never read, but you should have. No, uh, oh, actually, it was oh, the Captain Carrot uh, book. Okay, well, this is one I had never read, and I should have. Uh, and I'm a little surprised. As I read through it, I was a little surprised that I had never read it before. Uh, and I'm going to give, you know, I'll give a synopsis in a moment. But uh, quite frankly, I find, found it just a little bit less bombastic than I would want for the first appearance ever of the Justice League. Mm-hmm. It, it was, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, there. But we, we'll get into that, I guess, as we critique the book. The cover of it uh, has Starro, uh, who is a giant starfish, if you don't know that. And uh, he's got an eye in the middle that looks like Captain America's shield. Uh, and he is each, each of his limbs is fighting a different Justice League member. There's Green Lantern, there's Aquaman, there's Wonder Woman, The Flash, and John Johns. Uh, it is a... It's a good cover, um, but it's Again, not quite as iconic as I would like it to be. Uh, this has a cover date of March of 1960. The cover is by Mike Sikowski, Murphy Anderson, and Jack Adler. The story is written by Gardner Fox, pencils by Mike Sikowski, inked by Bernard Sachs, Joe Giella, and Murphy Anderson, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, and edited by Julius Schwartz. Excuse me, Julius Schwartz. The synopsis is that while swimming the Atlantic, Aquaman comes upon Peter the Pufferfish, who tells him about a strange alien menace. He witnessed a gigantic creature named Starro land in the sea and use its powers to transform three starfish into oversized monsters that resemble Starro itself. Aquaman decides to call an emergency meeting of the Justice League of America and activates the communicator contained in his A-belt. Wonder Woman is the first to receive the signal and cuts short her date with Steve Trevor to respond to the call. She pilots her invisible robot plane to the Justice League's cavern headquarters. Superman is the next to receive the signal, but he's too busy in outer space smashing meteors that threaten to enter Earth's atmosphere. Likewise, Batman receives the distress call, but a crime wave in Gotham City prevents him from responding. Green Lantern is test-flying a jet fighter, but sets it on autopilot, then flies off for the meeting. The Flash, meanwhile, disrupts a powerful tornado and then speeds away in response to the call. Fortunately, it is easy for Detective John Jones to excuse himself as the police chief tells him that he has earned himself some much-needed vacation time. John hears the signal with his Martian hearing and flies off. At Justice League headquarters, Aquaman tells the assembled team what he's learned of Starro. The Flash, as acting chairman for the League, delegates orders to each League member and gives them the locations of each of the Starro agent's sightings. Green Lantern is to patrol Rocky Mountain National Park, while Wonder Woman and the Martian Manhunter investigate a sighting at Science City. Aquaman is to patrol the ocean depths, while Flash himself will investigate a Starro's presence in Happy Harbor, Rhode Island. Green Lantern charges his ring and begins patrolling the skies over the Rocky Mountains. He sees one of the Starro agents flying through the air to attack an Air Force jet bomber. 
The crew of the bomber fights back, but the Starro is invulnerable to the jet's machine guns. The creature's tentacles snake inside and steal one of the atomic missiles from the bomb bay. The plane dives into a tailspin, and Green Lantern uses his ring to set it down safely. When he turns his attention back towards Starro, he sees to his horror that the monster has detonated the atomic missile. Hal quickly envelops himself in a protective bubble and begins firing blasts of energy at Starro's thorax. After several well-placed hits, the creature weakens and reverts to its normal state. In Science City, Wonder Woman and the Martian Manhunter arrive just in time to find another Starro spore attacking the Hall of Science. The Starro wraps its huge body around the entire building, picks it up off the ground, and begins flying through the sky with it. During its flight, the creature uses its mental powers to absorb the accumulated scientific knowledge of everyone in the building, and the scientists inside are placed into a state of suspended animation. Wonder Woman stands on the wing of her robot plane and ensnares the edge of the building with her magic lasso. The Martian Manhunter, the Martian Manhunter makes use of his of falling meteor rocks, those that Superman missed, and uses his Martian breath to blow them at Starro. The attack is mildly successful, but it also ignites a fire on the exterior of the building. The Manhunter then uses his breath to create a suction that draws in nearby rain clouds. The rainfall succeeds in dousing the flames. Starro, however, concentrates his attack on Wonder Woman. Having absorbed atomic power from its fallen cousin, it generates blasts of energy from each of its tentacles. Wonder Woman deflects the blasts with her Amazonian bracelets, and the, ma the Manhunter uses a piece of a lead roof plating to protect himself. With the lasso still fastened to the building, Wonder Woman ties the other end of her plane and manages to jerk the Hall of Science free from Starro's grasp. She what? sets it... <laughs> yeah, we need Scott here for that. But, the, but that was a reasonable facsimile. She sets it safely upon the ground, then resumes the flight with Starro, the fight with Starro, excuse me. After several intense minutes, Starro finally weakens from the assault and collapses down onto the earth. It returns to, it, to the state of an ordinary starfish. Like the other spore, this Starro's knowledge and power transfers to its third partner. In Happy Harbor, Rhode Island, the Flash investigates the sighting of the third Starro agent. This one is using its powers to mentally control the town's populace. The Flash finds the one civilian who appears to be unaffected by the hypnotic attack, Snapper Carr, because he doesn't actually have a brain. Snapper is in the midst of... Oh, did I say that out loud? Snapper is in the midst of sprinkling <laughs> lime on his front lawn when he sees his family wander away from the house in a daze. They join with several other expressionless people who begin slowly walking towards Starro. Starro notices the Flash's presence and begins blasting at him with his energy attack, but the Flash is too fast for him. By encircling the creature at super speed, he manages to trap it inside a vortex and propel him out to sea. Then he begins drumming his feet on the shoreline at super speed, causing the water around Starro to part. When he stops, the water crashes back down on top of it, rendering the creature unconscious. With Starro inert, the townspeople regain control of their senses. The original Starro absorbs the knowledge and power of its defeated underlings and glides towards nearby Turkey Hollow. The Flash radios the rest of the League, who gathered together for the final showdown. With all of its accumulated power, Starro plans on taking control of the entire world. Starro learns of Green Lantern's weakness against co the color yellow and changes its own colors so that it will be invulnerable to Green Lantern's power ring. 
Flash is still curious as to why Snapper Carr was impervious to Starro's mental control. With Green Lantern's help, he learns that the lime covering Snapper's clothes was proof against the alien's power. Armed with a means of combating the monster, the Justice League gather up several barrels of lime, and Green Lantern uses his ring to sprinkle it all across Starro's body. The lime hardens around him, imprisoning Starro within the hard white shell. Grateful for unintentionally providing them with the means to defeat Starro, the Justice League makes Star Snapper Carr an honorary member of the team, and we'll just pretend that he isn't a poor man's Rick Jones. Bitch. <laughs> well, it's odd, because he was first. He was so. first, but he's so bad. Yeah. Uh, um, it's it, it's just you know as as I said it, it to me for the first appearance ever of the Justice League this is very underwhelming. Uh, first of all, why they wouldn't do some sort of an origin story, which seems to be, you know, to me it seems like it's a no brainer. It just you know of course you do how they got together first. You don't just have them have a headquarters. Um, you know, I mean, the Marvel did it right with the Avengers. Uh, I don't think that uh, I don't think that. Gardner Fox did it right with with the Justice League here, and then we're already here. We're all set. We're good to yeah. go. Why? What? what? Huh? And and the the story, you know, I, I've said many times that especially with DC's Silver Age, uh, a lot of times I just have to make allowances for the fact that these are clearly aimed at a much younger audience. But it really feels it feels very dumbed down to me and. Uh, I'm trying to remember, there were, there were parts in there where Green Lantern was using powers, and it was like, can he do that? <laughs> DC in the Silver Age is one of those things where most of the time, just because of my sensibilities of what I like to read, uh, just, me, me and the Silver Age of DC don't get along very well most of the time. Uh, especially, I can't binge anything from that era. Uh, with the exception of Flash. I don't know what it is about Flash, but that book was... The Flash is basically the amazing Spider-Man of DC in the Silver Age. Mm. Like, from the first issue, it was just good, and it just kept getting better. Uh, even though those are two very different books in terms of tone, because DC in the Silver Age was also very plot-driven. If you If you really mixed up this team... If you, like, had Wonder Woman and Green Lantern teaming up, I don't think there would have been an appreciable difference than Wonder Woman and Martian Manhunter teaming up. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not insulting the story because it was fun for what it was. But to kind of answer your question, uh, I, I this is like the modernization of the Justice Society. The Justice Society never had an origin story. Never had an origin story in the Golden Age. No, it wasn't until, just, the, until the late 70s that they finally yeah. did it. And Brave and the Bold was a tryout book. So I think they were just kind of wanting to throw the team together to see how people reacted to it before investing in an origin story. Which is weird because the first appearance of the Flash is his origin, the first appearance of Green Lantern is his origin. So why wouldn't you do that with the team? But I think they were really going on kind of the marquee level of it. Like, well, we're just throwing all these characters together. It'll work. And the reason why you don't see Superman and Batman 
in the story as much as you do is because Jack Schiff, who was the editor of Batman at the time, and Mark Wessinger, who was the editor of Superman, did not want them on this team. Mm -hmm. They wanted to keep them away from it. But, you know, DC's like, no, we've got... We've got all these really popular characters now. We're going to team them up. And I'm sure for people who were reading comics back then, this was like the most awesome thing ever. Like, they were just really excited. But it's not the fact that the villain is the giant starfish that is the silly thing about the story. And I, and I think that's very telling. Is Peter the Pufferfish the silly thing? Uh, you know, it's just like... Like, when I saw Peter the Pufferfish, that sounds like something somebody would joke about, but actually seeing it in print, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I find it funny enough that he's talking to a Pufferfish, but how did the Pufferfish get the name Peter? And I also like... Is, is that a common fish name? <laughs> I, I also like the fact that the the fish is telling us a story. Yes. <laughs> a short time ago, while floating upside down on the surface... <laughs> And then we have to have a little. Yeah, we have to have an explanation of the fact that uh, that that's what pufferfish do. (laughs) I also get the feeling that Mike Sikowski was kind of trying to channel Wayne Boring with his Superman shots of him doing that. My uh, (laughs) my least favorite thing about this issue is Wonder Woman's introduction is her, as I've told you before, Steve Trevor, I can't marry you until my services are no longer needed to battle crime and injustice. There's always going to be crime and injustice. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of funny because we, uh, I don't think it's been released, but we, Scott and Paul and I covered uh, um, a certain movie. I, don't, I guess I won't say it, but that was kind of one of the themes in there. Was that something she always said in the comics to Steve Trevor? Yes, I think yeah, I think uh, it was a, a pretty common. Okay. I don't, I didn't read too many of the early Wonder Woman stories, but I think it was a pretty common occurrence. Well, that kind of goes along with the movie we saw. I, I I've read a handful of Silver Age Wonder Woman, and Steve Trevor was thirsty for Diana, <laughs> and Diana was just constantly brushing him off. It was the it was the it was the inverse sexually, and when I mean sexually, I mean as in the the, the 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 gender of the people of the Clark Kent or the Superman Lois Lane thing, uh. Uh, where it was the guy that was it, and I just love that he 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 keeps asking, and it kind of reminded me of the Justice Society movie a little bit too, um, which I enjoyed. Uh, for what, for but, what it's worth, that's what Bill was making reference to. Ah, you, okay, you, okay, you've outed him. Oh. I, I didn't know. I, I haven't seen Wonder Woman 84 either, so I didn't know if that was going to be a thing. Uh, uh, da, no, that re- no, that wasn't really a thing in that. I don't remember that being a thing for him asking but, her to marry him. I, I don't think it was. But, uh, but, but what it really looks like is that Steve was once again like putting pressure on her, and she's like, i got to go, Steve. It's just as like... <laughs> like, how many times did she say that when there was no emergency? <laughs> <laughs> Secret signal. Gotta go. <laughs> I understand, Angel. Hurry back. I'll be right here. Waiting. Forever. Batman's face is so funny in, in that one panel 
uh, on page four. It's just like, why is his face so flat? Because <laughs> he's a bat. He's gonna fly like, I have been in constant touch with the other members. <laughs> they, they don't even bother to I'm closing in on two arch enemies who've joined forces to loot Gotham City. I'm not going to mention who they are. Because, yeah. because that, that would actually entail, <laughs> you know, making you look for another story. <laughs> he just really didn't want to go. Um, weird question, and it, it just it popped in my mind as I was reading it today. Do you guys prefer like this version of the Green Lantern uniform, or do you like it when the green goes over the shoulders? I prefer as the green over the shoulders. Yeah. This yeah. this looks too much like a like a onesie that he's got on. <laughs> it's like he's he's wearing a vest. Yeah, got my sweater so, vest on. I and here's the other thing that uh, of things that you're not meant to think about, and yet I did. What are all those books? Oh, like in in their meeting room. Yeah, like like did did like the Encyclopedia Britannica salesman come by, and that's like most of them. That was a big thing back then. People would have their encyclopedias on display. Oh, so. we did. When I was a kid, we, we got... My parents invested in the Encyclopedia Britannica because they wanted us to have things that we could do research papers with and not have to go to the library. So We had a similar thing at my house, and I did use it to do papers. So. <laughs> and I, every I, year we got the update. That we didn't do. So, uh, so it is... Is uh, there a missing panel here after um, Aquaman says, uh, you know, well, I don't know what its powers are, but I do know the three localities where its starfish warriors are due to appear and start the conquest of Earth. And then there, then there should be a missing panel where one of them says, and you were told this by a puffer fish. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody was just, you know, cool with it. <laughs> you know, s sadly, according to the DC Wiki, uh, this is the only appearance of Peter the Puffer Fish. Aww. You you would think he was the breakout star of this issue. Um, I can't even say that without laughing. He's Aquaman's uh, eyes and ears on the ground. And it's and you know it's. I I think you you know you go to Bob Haney and his uh, Teen Titans, and then you know this with Snapper Carr, and it just shows you. What they thought teenagers were like in those days. Yeah, I hated Snapper Car in this story, mainly because his dialogue is terrible. It's so Just, crowded. It's Antsville. It's Antsville, man. Stop it. And it's <laughs> <laughs> On a side note, I met someone at work, and. Uh, they said, oh, yeah, that's that's Rich James. I'm like, excuse me, did you say Rich James? They're like, yeah. I'm like, that's, that's his name, right? Yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Look, I was so tempted. I'm Rich James, bitch. But I, but, but I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Uh, well, you, just but ask, now you did. <laughs> but now I did. What teenager... He's, like, really excited that he finished putting lime down on the yard. I know I always was. Man, this grass mat is the coolest. I don't Wait, think I've ever put lime down on the yard. The only time I ever even heard lime benches is, like, you know, if you get a tick, you could get lime disease. 
Or if you're, you know, taking care of bodies. Yeah, I was just saying, yeah, yeah. in Goodfellas. Yeah, I had a in your head. Oof, man, that hurts. Wait till Daddy-O casts his orbs on it. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling that, 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 that Snapper gets beaten up at school a lot. But I agree, but I think you're not supposed to think that. You're supposed to think he's incredibly cool. Yeah. Dig that crazy pinwheel. Uh, my favorite part of the issue was actually the Green Lantern chapter because it also felt kind of like a war book at the same time. Mm. Uh, and I really liked the art. Uh, as improbable as most of it was, the art of the of the the uh, pilots and all that, the machine guns, uh, and like the, the star the, the 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 starfish like wrapping itself around the plane. Which isn't so much a jet fighter as a, it looks like a passenger plane, <laughs> a little bit. But no, I just I just really enjoyed that. I I really wasn't into the Wonder Woman John Jones thing. See, this this book did hit on the whole uh, mind control aspect of Starro, and I think that's really the way you need to go uh, in order for, to make the character as scary as it should be. And it seems like it hit on it, and then it shied away. Yeah, I, I, I think the the mind control would have made it a more formidable more formidable foe. Yeah, it focused more on that. For a character that is known for mind control, it's amazing that it took to the last chapter to actually get to the mind control. <laughs> and yet, you know, at this time it wasn't known for anything because this is his first appearance. But, you know, just the same, as you're writing it, you'd think, hey, I came up with this mind control thing. Let me backtrack a little bit and and use that a little bit more because that's where the character can actually be scary. Then you start getting into the invasion of the body snatchers kind of thing. Yeah. Do they murder Starro at the end of the story? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think, and I honestly don't know. Uh... If you were to take a real starfish and put lime on it, I think it would kill it. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking it would cause it to, to dry up so much that it would die. And also, this is Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, The Flash, Aquaman, and The Martian Manhunter. These are the elite. These are the big dogs. Like, in... in in JLA number four, Green Arrow joins the team. And they're letting this teenager that just showed up, like, have, like, a membership and, and, and a card and all of that. And it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Hey, somebody's got to get that coffee. <laughs> it's just like, you guys going to let me fight the crime? Yeah, tra- yeah, Snapper, that'll be great. Would you, uh, would you, have you finished polishing everybody's boots? No. <laughs> get on it. Uh, but I'm with you, Paul. It's just like you, you, when you when you th- I, I think a lot of these Silver Age stories to modern audiences or to more modern readers are better in, like conceptually than the actual stories. Now I know people. There are people that love these, and you know I never want to take it. You know, never yuck anyone's yum. Never never tell them that they're stupid for liking it. Uh, it's just 
I, I have tried on so many occasions to try to read like Justice League from the beginning, and it's so hard. Yeah, well, I, 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 yeah, I would not criticize anybody who thinks this is the greatest thing. You think that? More power to you. That's fine. Uh, it just, you know, I, I part of the idea of this show, you know, if you haven't noticed over the years, is that we give you our, our honest opinions of it. And my honest opinion is, I was disappointed by it. I, I, I expected better. Yeah, I do have to say that that last panel shot of uh wonder woman she looks very uh i don't want to say attractive because she looks very young too but she it's it's an interesting uh well she's got some massive ears unless that's uh supposed to be uh is that supposed to be a uh not her earlobe but is that like a uh earring supposedly just didn't it got miscolored she's got like a huge ear that has to be miscolored. Where are we? Which page are we on? Final, final panel where Snapper's snapping his fingers, and then Wonder Woman's just kind of looking at him. I think that's just a weird art thing. Yeah, I, I think so also. Mm. Or she's got. You ever see those people who have, who have those earrings where it's the giant hoop that they put inside the lobe? Could be oh, that's that. Just, that's just freaky. There's an actual term for that, but the older I get, the more I forget it because I don't think I'm allowed to remember what it's called. <laughs> See, this is how, how we're getting repetitive because we were talking earlier about how we can't remember this stuff. <laughs> you know, going back to their meeting their meeting room, like, there's stairs. What is upstairs? Like, you, you've got the television downstairs, is a, is, and I, I assume there's a hi-fi setup. Uh, like back there too, like you know, and I just kind of picture everyone like sitting around listening to Brat Pack, uh, the Rat Pack music. Like you got Sinatra and Dean Martin playing, and somebody's got a scotch, and somebody's smoking because it's the '60s and it's okay. There's a piano. <laughs> it's it's the more grown up headquarters, uh, you know, the the more adult headquarters or the adult more adult version of Titan's Tower. Yeah, because you wouldn't see this. Like, like the Avengers were in Avengers Mansion, so it's going to look swanky simply because it's a mansion. And the FF, you know, they had, like, living quarters, but, like, the exciting thing about their headquarters was all the super scientific stuff going on. This actually looks like a cool place to hang out. There should be a game room that you could see. That's what's upstairs. There's a pool table and an air hockey table. And then we, you know, we have the hangar back there with the invisible jet. That's yeah, not so, a bad place. It's it's kind of it's kind of the Justice League's Batcave. Yeah, they let Batman pick it out. It's like, of course he wanted a cave. Oh, <laughs> well, we gotta have a cave. <laughs> oh, what a broken record that man is. <laughs> Or it could be the Fortress of Solitude. It could be the two of them stuck these guys with that, and then they said, "Yeah, I'm not going there." <laughs> <laughs> is there a giant dinosaur? I'm not going anywhere that there isn't a giant dinosaur. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know about you guys, but you know, we gotta we gotta make this place secure. Can we get a giant key? <laughs> Superman, why are you such a dick? <laughs> I do, I do like that you pointed out the Wayne Boring 
way that he's drawn because I hadn't seen that. And then and then on the next page that the the flat faced Batman, I'm thinking that looks not unlike like a Bob Kane kind of thing. Yeah, like a so Sheldon Moldoff or. Um, I think they're going yeah. for like the classic looks. Yeah. And I love that Batmobile. I have always loved that Batmobile. It doesn't really make any sense, but I still love it. It's the same one that Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse drove. <laughs> Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. A Batman and Robin type thing. wonder who created Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. Hmm. Actually, I did not know that. Who created... Was that Bob Kane? Bob Kane. Kane. Did he really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, Bob Kane created Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. <laughs> well... To be fair, somebody else probably created it, and Bob King took credit for it, but still. He just, he just came over and said, what, what, what was it on The Walking Dead where they would go over and just claim, claimed? <laughs> <laughs> like, he had the idea, Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse, but other people drew the, drew the concept drawings and came up with the basic Bible of the show, and he just took credit for it. Or maybe he's more like the seagulls on... Uh... And, uh, mine? 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 mine. <laughs> In Finding Nemo? Yeah. Uh, you know this is an early 60s survey because there's a random nuclear explosion and it's not horrific. Oh, yeah. It's just, <laughs> oh, I better put my shield up. No, screw the surrounding people and the populace and well, the, the nuclear fallout. The plane eh, is fine. just flying around with nuclear weapons in it. <laughs> well, I have a point to make about that because that kind of looks like a that could be fashioned after a B fifty two, and they may or may not have been flying around with nuclear weapons. So, if it was a B fifty two instead of Peter the Puffy Fish, Pufferfish, should we have had a rock lobster? Boom, 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 <laughs> boom, 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 boom. How long have you had that in your back pocket, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, was, that just came out of nowhere. Paul made me do it because I was going to work that in like within the next sentence or two, so he got it in before I did. Kudos. Bonus points, Paul. I'll, I'll take them when I can get them. Uh, so, I mean, in a nutshell, to me, kind of a disappointing and, and inauspicious debut of the Justice League. Uh, but I do think... What you said earlier is kind of true, Mike, that uh, some of this stuff, like you can't binge read these. You need to just kind of pick one up once in a while and read it. And my experience of the Justice League in the first, I'm, I'm kind of generalizing here, but probably in the first 50 appearances or so, uh, is always similar in that I always find myself a little disappointed that it isn't, there isn't more meat to it and there isn't more epicness uh, to the stories and I think that's more uh, because of just the error they were coming out in and again that they were written for younger audiences and it wasn't until I, I think it wasn't until Marvel showed them what to do that they did, that they started to make the stories a little bit more intelligent yeah there, there's something to be said it was something actually Andy Leyland and I were talking about just texting each other about uh, a couple weeks ago is that there some people kind of get their uh, undies in a bunch when you say, well, it was really only when Marvel writers came over to DC that DC characters started to get kind of interesting. And unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> you know, There were flashes of, of 
of brilliance as time went on, but it wasn't consistent. I mean, Batman really didn't get interesting in a modern sense, and I'm saying like the last 50 years, until Denny O'Neill and Bob Brown started writing it. I mean, the the uh, John Broom like stories, like right before the series hit, were interesting, but they were formulaic like whodunits. Whereas when you get into the 70s, the writers really, uh, in DC, the writers really start digging into the emotion of the character. And, you know, you could argue that, you know, there were some very emotional Superman stories, especially the return to Krypton and stuff, but it really wasn't until the 70s that that they started really kind of looking at who that character was and what his double life was. Uh, The uh, Batman... When, you know, Batman didn't have an adult relationship with a woman until Steve Englehart wrote the book. Earlier, it was just like what a what a what a nine year old thinks of as a relationship, and you know, Englehart made Batman a character. So it, it's you know, you have like the JLA JSA uh, crossovers or, or uh, team ups are usually a lot of fun. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a bigness to that, but it Justice League itself doesn't really start getting interesting to me until the late '60s and the early '70s, when you had like writers like Denny O'Neill working on the book. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. It's it's uh, again, I I think DC took longer to mature, and there's something to be said for those earlier younger oriented books but I think you need to have the right mindset to read them I think in a lot of times when we cover these books I try to uh, gear my ratings of the book towards the audience it was meant for as opposed to you know a a, a middle aged uh, hanging on to middle age at this point in my life uh, you know person picking up the book to read them because they weren't meant for me and they weren't meant to be read, you know, 50-something years after, or now this is 61 years ago. They weren't meant to be read 61 years later. When, when they were being written, I, I seriously doubt that's what uh, Gardner Fox was contemplating. He was contemplating, okay, wh- what do I have to write next to get my paycheck? Well, if you guys don't have any more on this, uh, if the audience thinks that we're going to get to a serious Star Wars st- Star Wars story, let me... Uh... Wait, wait, wait. We're going to touch on my two books real quick, which is a serious Star Wars story. It's uh, Justice League of America 189 wait, wait, and wait. 190. Wait, wait, wait. What, what? We didn't rate this book. I know you didn't. I just said I was going to talk about it real quick. We were going to rate this one, and then you talk about the other ones. Oh, we do have to rate it, yes. Oh, well, I thought you weren't going to rate it, so go ahead. Rate I'm going to rate it. We'll, we'll do okay. it. I'm going to say the Come cover. Come on, we're waiting. Come the on, cover, rate the cover is yeah. The cover is good, not great like it should be, but it is. You know, it's it's fairly well drawn, and it gives all of the characters kind of equal uh, billing on it, and it doesn't pretend that Superman and Batman have any serious role in this, which I appreciate because I think later on they might do that. Uh, I'm going to give the cover a B-. It's good, it's just not really good. Uh, the interior art kind of... It's a little simplistic in that 1960s way, uh, but overall it, it does a fairly good job of telling the story, and I think there's a few images that are above average. 
Uh, I think the character design on Starro, they'll show us later on, uh, probably in the books you're going to talk about, that they could do better with it. But, you know, overall I thought the interior art was decent. I'm also going to say a B- minus on that. The story is just so silly and so so not epic that I'm going to give that just a, a C. It's just there. Uh, and overall I'll give the book a, a C+. Plus. You basically took all the things I was going to say. <laughs> and my exact ratings, too. Okay. So, ditto, I guess I should say. Anything to add, Bill, before you go into your books? 23 skidoo. I mean, I, since Mike took ditto, I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> I don't know exactly how that relates to what we're talking about, but, but you run with it, my friend. <laughs> it's my stick. Now okay. you could talk about your books. Nah. <laughs> I know you guys didn't read it, but it's the two-part story. Starro comes back. He takes over New York. He brainwashes all of the Justice League with the little tiny Starros, which uh, that's where the, the the first cover of the two has Starro on the Empire State Building and a bunch of little Starros going out smacking onto the faces of, like, uh, Green Lantern, Superman, and then getting ready to take on the others. And then in the second cover to the other one is the one where you've got the giant Starro in the background and, uh, and in, the f- in, in the foreground and going back off into the background, everybody has the Starro over the face. And everybody's been brainwashed, and the, the, the military is going to come in and destroy the entire city, but Red Tornado has been faking it the whole time and is the man on the inside, and the Justice League wins. Ta-da, end of story. How's that for a quick synopsis of two books, no less, by me and probably a minute? I just I keep thinking of uh, John Lovitz on Saturday Night Live when he played the thespian. And that's what it's Red Tornado acting. was doing. Yeah, like the whole thing, he, he's, he's pretending like he's in, and then he just comes out and says, acting! <laughs> now I want to hear John Lovett says Red Tornado. Says Red Tornado. It's better than cats. I'll see it again and again. <laughs> yeah, and I was, uh, I was a yeah. human being named John Smith. Yeah, that's the yeah, thing. And I could uh, spin around and make myself like a Tornado, yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah. And Wonder, Wonder Woman would be, would be played by my girlfriend, Morgan Fairchild. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a book, Mike? <laughs> I, uh, I do have a book. Oh, wait, aren't we going to grade the covers? I say that covers the, are first awesome. cover, the first cover is like a B plus, the second one's an A. So, yeah. And the storyline overall is good, and the art's good. So there you go. Now, which which issues were these? What were the numbers? One eighty nine and one ninety. It was nineteen eighty one. Uh, I want to say April and May. I, I would say the cover of one ninety is probably the best depiction of Starro ever. I'll agree with that. Definitely. I I, I, I cannot disagree with any of that. Jerry Conway's a writer. Rich Buckler. Uh, Bob Smith and Larry Manstead were the artists. Oh, Malstead. Okay. It's way far away, and I didn't have it zoomed in. And John Costanza. <laughs> Len Wein was the editor. So, there we go. All right. Moving on to you, Mike. All righty. We have, from the sublime to the ridiculous, is but just 
is but a step. We have Captain America, Captain America, Captain Carrot and his amazing Zoo Crew Funtabulous first issue. And I'm not saying it's Funtabulous the cover is. And you have the Zoo Crew busting in where Superman is held with kryptonite chains. And you've got Captain Carrot and Pig Iron and Yankee Poodle and Alley Cat Dabra and Fastback and Rubber Duck. And Captain Carrot is like, have no fear, the zoo crew is here. This is a March 1982 cover date. It came out on 24th. 1981, supposedly. This is a new breed of animals in action. <laughs> Go really wrong really fast. <laughs> uh, with Roy Thomas as the writer and Scott Shaw as the penciler, assisted and occasionally ambushed by Bob Smith's inker, Todd Klein letterer, Carl Gafford colorist, and Dick Giordano editor, with special thanks to Ross Andrew. And just in case you didn't know, this is spilling out of the preview from New Teen Titans number 16, which maybe I should have picked, but I didn't. Anyways, the Pluto Syndrome opens on Superman flying and Captain Carrot hopping, and the two bantering about how it's a world full of animals, now Carrot won't be able to catch up, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly a passenger plane is hit by a beam, and its pilots revert to their primal selves. Carrot tries to save the plane, but it doesn't work out too well, and when Superman gets ready to do his thing, he experiences a dizzy spell like the one he had earlier in the Teen Titans preview. It's up to Carrot to save the plane, which he does, barely. And if I haven't mentioned it, the entire world is full of anthropomorphics. Afterwards, the two heroes continue on their quest to figure out what's going on with the ray from on Superman's home Earth, and we get Carrot's secret origin, which is that he ate a carrot from a bo- from a carrot that was in a box with a window where a meteor crashed into it. Uh, and the meteor's rays gave the carrot his powers, and now he's super powerful. They head back into space, and Superman disappears, leaving Captain Carrot falling planetward. He is saved by Pig Iron, who tells Carrot his origin. He was Peter Pork got hit by one of the meteor fragments and fell into molten metal. Came out covered in the stuff and it was really powerful. Realizing they need to find someone that can fly, they track down another superpowered being that got her powers from the meteor fragment. They do this in Mew Orleans in the form of Alley Cat Abra, who is really Felina Fur, who is a martial arts expert and part-time witch. Felina got her powers when a meteor fragment crashed to where she was meditating. They head west and find the turtle known as Fastback, who got his powers from, shockingly, a fragment of meteor. And finally, they head to L.A. where they find Rubber Duck and Yankee Poodle. Rubber Duck is really bird rentals. And and Yankee Poodle is Rova Barkett. Uh, they, yeah, yeah. they head into space and are soon transported to Pluto, where they find Superman tied to a table with kryptonite chains. Suddenly, the villain of the piece makes his presence known. It's Starro, who's just standing there, uh, and who really wants to take over their Earth. The crew takes on Starro, first one at a time, and then as a team, and are finally able to take Starro down. They release Superman, who wishes them well, and returns to his Earth, Captain Carrot declares their team to be known as the Zoo Crew. Meanwhile, the par- the president gets an uh, ultimatum from Across Stick, who's part of a bad guy organization. 
And thus, the next issue is set up. At least it's goofy on purpose. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I have always had a little bit of a soft spot for this. Uh, it's something that I shouldn't like. I should just be like rolling my eyes and walking away. But I find it amusing. And you, this you issue leads is no into exception the to that. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's supposed to be a comedy book. It's supposed to be a funny animal book. And yeah. to try to judge it as a serious superhero book, I think you're just barking up the wrong tree. Pun fully intended. Uh, one of my favorite uh, bits of trivia about the zoo crew is pig iron. Did you guys know that Peter Porkchop is actually an existing DC character? Mm-mm. I did not. He was a funny animal character from the 50s. He had like his own series. Really? Yeah, <laughs> and then... Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's insane. I know. You, you would think, wow, why... Why the heck would this character, you know, be around? But he was actually an existing character. I mean, you can, we can joke about uh, uh, Bird Reynolds. <laughs> I find Bird Reynolds to be funny, but the what is it, Rona Bark, whatever. Bark, yeah, that's not. <laughs> you don't think? <laughs> I always liked the uh, the character model for Pig Iron. I just thought, I always thought it looked really cool. But yeah, when you look at his, the the character appearances uh, for Peter Porkchop, it's uh, like he his first appearance was like in leading comics <laughs> back in nineteen forty. So props to um, props to Roy Thomas for pulling that one out. Uh, but no, I I love this team, and I love this team mainly because of who's who. Because every single one of them got an entry. And I just thought they were cool-looking characters. I'm just I'm just looking at the uh, at the wiki page, and it says Zoo Crew first appearance, and it lists them all. But it does not... I don't think it makes mention of Peter Porkchop's having pre-existed. And I did a quick Google search when you said it, and I see a bunch of covers of the issues from the 50s which is pretty wild. Uh, but but I guess the DC Wiki is not complete because it doesn't mention that, unless if I click specifically on Pig Iron. Here we go. Uh, this version of Pig Iron includes all history correspondence and erased from existence following the collapse of the multiverse in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Even though versions of the character may have appeared since, this information does not apply to those versions. In Peter Porkchop's number 30, Peter's hometown is given as Zooville. Years later, in Captain Carrot, he resides in the city of Pigsburg. Perhaps he moved in the 30-odd years between. So they do mention, you know, the the prior existence. He's He's the only member of the zoo crew who was introduced during the Golden Age era. I do kind of dig that they, um, on page 25, they have the zoo crew taking on Starro, like the cover to Brave and the Bull, number 28. Yes, uh, I, I, I took note of that also. And uh, Scott I, Shaw's artwork is just amazing. 
I, I really like after they defeat him, which is, they just defeat him by all combining themselves and they beat him. Uh, <laughs> like, there's not really a, a dramatic moment there. Uh, but I like when they beat him and he's laying on the floor and, and his Captain America shield eye is half closed. Yeah. <laughs> At least he's not covered in lime and dying. Oh, wait, 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 wait. They they, uh, they do that. Sorry. <laughs> they do he's, cover him in he's, lime. He's shriveling up already. I remember reading somewhere that starfish are allergic to limestone, and since limestone is used in steel making, yeah, that was uh, that was your flash fact. I, I'm, I'm guessing the thanks to Ross Andrew is that Ross Andrew drew the Superman parts of it. It's funny because when I read this, I did not notice that on the uh, on the you know on the, the splash page. But in in uh, on page three when they showed the sweating Superman, I saw that and I thought, wow, that looks like Ross Andrew. And I was going to comment that I thought they were, uh, I I thought they were trying to make it look like him, you know, like his art. I thought it was you know trying to channel him a little bit. And even on page four in this in the shot when he's landing, that looks like it looks like it's almost from a Spider-Man pose by Ross Andrew. The fact that the villain for the the villain team is acrostic, which is a certain really ominous secret throng inevitably christened. I used to get the feeling that Roy Thomas just had a lot of fun with this one. I, I think it's it's kind of Roy Thomas. You know, Roy Thomas is famous for his, you know, love of the Golden Age characters and playing with them. And I guess ultimately he thought funny animal books were fun too. And he decided to go with that. But this could have easily fallen in very, very flat. Uh, but I just think it's, you know, there's, there's moments in it where it's kind of clever. And as you said, you kind of have to embrace it a little bit. But if you do, it's kind of fun. Well, there's a lot of little, like, things on billboards and on buildings and on character sh- shirts. Like, one one character's got, what is it, Dick Duck Fan Club on his shirt. And there's Koala Cola in the background. Like in the shot, welcome to Mew, Mew Orleans, Mardi Gras. There's like so. There's a just you could just really you know get lost just reading all the stuff. Like the opening plane, I think. What does it say? Uh, Trans Wolf Airlines. <laughs> and the pilots are birds. The birds who can't fly. They're flightless birds. A while back, Bill, didn't you, Scott, and I do a funny animal book that you brought, or you know, like a a, a, a uh, was it a Captain Carrot? It was it was not a Captain Carrot, but I, I seem to remember wait you we, we you and Scott liking it and me hating it. Was it a Bugs uh, no, Bunny one? I think it, I think it was a, I think it might have been a Peter Porker. I don't remember. It's, well, it's been Spider so Ham. Spider. Oh no no! It, you know what it was? It was it was a uh, Marvel Apes book. Ah, uh, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Because it was Doc yes. Ook. Doc Ook. <laughs> was it the. And I remember, I really, did, I really did one? not like it. I really did not like it. But you guys <laughs> thought it was funny. So it all comes down to if you can embrace it or not. Because wasn't it the character that. Uh, it was a character that. Had an ape costume or like a creature costume and then he became the creature. It was the Gibbon. The Gibbon. That's it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think it was like the first issue of Marvel Ape, or Marvel Apes, and then he went to another parallel, or Earth, where 
all the cre- all the everybody all the characters were apes or yeah yeah it was a whole society that ah, that was a while back wasn't it like the fact that one of the newspapers on page 14 is the daily beagle <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I I, I I I cannot help but just kind of smile at this it, it's not necessarily my thing but when you have a page like on page 21 Starro's just like look at what I got I got Superman <laughs> <laughs> so Captain Carrot is Roger Rabbit is this I don't remember. Is does that predate? Yeah, that predates who framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, they they talked yes. about this kind of on the uh, on the uh, Who's Who podcast because Who Framed Roger Rabbit is an adaptation of Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Ah, uh. uh, so that there's a there's a whole like what came first, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this came out in 1981, and that book came out in 1981. Mm. So, so it's like Man Thing and Swamp Thing. Yeah. So, and I think that's why they they eventually stop calling him Roger Rabbit. It's like they call him Rodney Roger Rabbit. So it's like kind of a a Bruce uh, a Bruce Banner thing, where mm. that's his middle name. First name's Robert because we called him Bob at one point. <laughs> Yankee Poodle has the power of animal magnetism. Yeah, it can repel and, and, and bring. I just love that it's a poodle. I really need to dress one of my dogs up like that. <laughs> <laughs> just to, if anyone is interested in, in going back in time a little bit, uh, our our review of the Marvel Apes book was in episode number four fifteen. Of back to the bins, so I don't know that anyone is interested. But if they, if they, even if there's one person who does, then I'm glad I looked it up. So do we want to rate this really quick? Sure. All right. Uh, I'm actually going to give the cover an A because I really like this cover for animals. I, I think I think everybody looks great, especially Captain Carrot. Superman looks great. It's just a really eye-catching cover. I'm going to give the story a B plus because it is very repetitive, but it kind of calls itself out for that, so props to that. And the interior art, I'm also going to give an A because funny animal artwork like this is really hard to do, and Scott Shaw pulls it off brilliantly. And I just, I just really like it. So I'm gonna give the whole thing like an A minus. Okay, I'm probably just a tick below you on each one, but I think it's really well done. So instead of an A minus, I'm gonna give it a B plus. Uh, but just, I, I pretty much agree with everything you said. I just, you know, I think you're just a little, just slightly higher on it. Uh, and I, and I would add to what you said about the artwork. It's even made more complicated by having to intersperse Superman into it and mm-hmm. still have the artwork not feel, you know, like it doesn't belong together. Mm. Superman took this appearance just for the check. <laughs> well, this, this was this was in the days, you know, when in, in the first or second issue of virtually every series you'd see the Superman or Batman. 
you know, Superman stopped by to, it's, it's like the Spider-Man was the same way. Uh, I think, um, I'm about it. Like a B minus, um, you know, I, I mean, a B plus a, a minus on it. Um, it's a very dense book too. It's not a quick read. Not if you want to understand everything that's going on. And that's this which is nice. Said for that with with a yeah. book that is, you know, in theory aimed at a younger audience, but it's 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 made in a way where it could appeal to all audiences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know this. Oh, you this know is what? One... I just yeah. I just noticed that uh, you you guys caught that Roger draws the J uh, the Justice League, right? The just a lot of animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this is Earth C, by the way. And at one point they do get transported to the world of the just a lot of animals, which is Earth C minus. <laughs> I was I was gonna comment on this one though that uh in order to rate this one I did not feel the need to put myself in the place of the target audience, which I think again, with a funny animal book, there's something to be said for that. Absolutely. No, I'll agree with that completely. So that's our 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 Starro the Conqueror uh score episode. Of course we really didn't have that much Starro talk in it, but hey, you know. <laughs> so what do you want some... for a giant starfish? <laughs> exactly. I just don't think there's that much to say about him, really. There isn't much to say about Starro. I will agree with that. So uh I think, I think we've made the slaps. most of it. He takes a, he he wants to take everything over and he slaps you in the face. So, you know. It's kind of like marriage. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that again? Damn. But once again, I'll say you know when well written, it, it, you know he could be in a, a a credible threat or a uh, in, in this Captain Carrot book an interesting foil. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say, Mike, thanks for coming on, but I'm just hoping that you know we we have you often enough that I don't need to thank you anymore, and you're just kind of you know one of the guys. <laughs> and, and, and I don't have to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> but no, but, this was a lot of fun. Thank you all for having me. And thank you everybody for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Slut, she's a slut. Uh, oh, hell no! <laughs> she hit me up now, motherfucker! It's Starro! Like a mighty New York City sewer alligator! I'd hate to say I told you so. That is a lie. <laughs>
I told you! Only our combined forces could defeat a foe that size. All right, Luther. I'll bring my super strength, laser eyes, invulnerability, and super speed. And you bring your slightly above average intelligence. You know what? F*** you, Superman. <laughs> Joker, now on sale. Collect all 18 variant covers. I got mine. Hey, Sinestro, you remember your Latin core basic training? The old bow and arrow maneuver. You, you idiot! This parasol's more than just a fashion statement. Sorry, sorry. Riddle me this. Can anyone hear me? Riddle me this. It's time Starro learned that speed kills. Guys, maybe I can turn the tide of this battle with the aid of my ocean friends. Aquaman calls us the horses of the sea to fight. So if any of you wishes to leave, go now and let no sea horse hold in judgment. He that does, you are free, all of you, to do. As you choose. Hi, lads. Even slow-witted Steve stayed. And crippled Kevin. Kevin, whose tail was gripped by a crab. Look upon one another and know that on this day, ye all chose to fight for the one in the tight green leggings and orange shirt. The one who sometimes carries a trident, but mostly no. The one with the locks of gold, fairer than any maiden. We fight for the one they call Aquaman! So ride the currents as though your tails were set alight. For your name should be remembered from this day and forevermore! Yeah! For if this is the end, I want to die here, in your arms. Among all these dead seahorses. For Aquaman! So many dead seahorses. I love you. I love you! Could it be? True love has touched even this old starfish's heart? We have no reason to fight, my friends! Smile, you son of a bitch! I guess we learned something here today, Luther. Indeed we have. For all our combined powers, we were fools to think we could defeat the greatest power in the universe. Love. It's so beautiful. It's a little gross. The bride and groom will now read the vows they have written. When I met Lena, I never realized one person could teach me so much about life and love and following my own passion. That's how I finally found the courage to ask. Bizarro, will you marry me? And, and Bizarro say yes! Oh, this is beautiful. Bizarro say yes! 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 A thousand times yes! You may now kiss the bride. Yes! Me one kiss! Yes! Yes! Uh -huh. <laughs>
This is how we're ending the second Robot Chicken DC comic special? With a bullshit fake out wedding? Damn it, aren't you dead? Oh, I got the magic amulet. Drop your d***s and grab your flip-flops. We are sex polluter. Oh, baby, baby, with that ass so sweet with a brain in the sand. You're dying to be sex loser. Sex loser. The Joker's back and better than ever. On sale now.